0: chapter 9 of the secret battle by a. p. herbert this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by roger maline for after that harry began to be in a bad way again that shelling in the night and the near concussion of the shell that knocked him over had been one of those capital shocks of which i have spoken from that time on Shell-fire in the open became a special terror, a new favorite fear. Afterwards he told me so. And all that winter we had shell-fire in the open. Even the lines were not trenches, only a string of scattered shell-holes garrisoned by a few men. Everywhere, night and day, you had that naked feeling. Yet in France, at the worst, given proper rest and variety, with a chance to nurse his courage and soothe his nerves. A resolute man could struggle on a long time after he began to crack. But Harry had no rest, no chance. The affair Philpott was having a rich harvest. For about three weeks in the February of that awful winter, the battalion was employed solely on working parties, all sorts of them, digging, carrying, Behind the line. In the line. Soft jobs. Terrible jobs. Now, as adjutant, I used to take particular care that the safe jobs in the rear should be fairly shared among the companies in a rough rotation, and that no officers or men should have too many of the bad ones. The night-carrying parties to the front line. But about now, Colonel Philpott began to exert himself about these parties. He actually issued orders about the arrangements, and whether by accident or design, his orders had this particular effect, that Harry took about three times as many of the dangerous parties as anyone else. We were in a country of rolling down, with long trough-like valleys of ravines between. To get to the front line, you had to cross two of these valleys, and in each of them the Bosch put a terrific barrage all night, and every night. The second one, the Valley of Death, was about as near to Inferno as I wished to see, for it was enfiladed from both ends, and you had shell fire from three directions well for three weeks harry took a party through this valley four or five nights a week each party meant a double passage through two corners of hell with a string of weary men to keep together and encourage and command with all that maddening accumulation of difficulties i have tried already to describe and at the end of that winter after all he had done it was too much i protested to the colonel but it was no good master penrose can go on with these parties he said till he learns how to do them properly after ten days of this harry began to be afraid of himself or as he put it i don't know if i can stand much more of this all his old distrust of himself which lately i think he had very successfully kept away Came creeping back. But he made no complaint. He did not ask me to intercede with Philpott. The more he hated and feared these parties, the worse he felt, the keener became his determination to stick it out, to beat Philpott at his own game. Or so I imagine. For by the third week, there was no doubt, what is called his nerve was clean gone or as he put it to me in the soldier's tongue, I've got complete wind-up. He would have given anything except his pride to have escaped one of those parties. He thought about them all day. I did manage, in sheer defiance of Philpott, to take him off one of them, but it was only sheer dogged willpower and perhaps the knowledge that we were to be relieved the following week which carried him through to the end of it if we had not gone out i don't know what would have happened but i can guess and so philpot finally broke his nerve but he was still keen and resolute to go on in spite of the bitterness in his heart philpot and other things had still to break his spirit and the other things were many that winter It was a long, cold, comfortless winter. Billets became more and more broken and windowless and lousy. Firewood vanished, and there was little coal. On the high slopes there was a bitter wind, and men went sick in hundreds—pneumonia, fever, frostbite. All dugouts were damp and chilling and greasy with mud or full of the acrid wood smoke that tortured the eyes there were night advances in the snow where lightly wounded men perished of exposure before dawn for a fortnight we lived in tents on a hilltop covered with snow and one day harry discovered he was lousy then socially though it seems a strange thing to say these were dull days for harry Few people realize how much an infantryman's life is lightened if he has companions of his own kind, not necessarily of the same class, though it usually comes to that, but of the same tastes and education and experience, men who make the same kind of jokes. In the line it matters little-a man is a man, as the press will tell you. But in the evenings out at rest, It was good and cheering to sit with the old crowd and exchange old stories of Gallipoli and Oxford and London, even to argue with Eustace about the public schools, to be with men who liked the same songs, the same tunes on the gramophone, who did not always ask for My Dixie Bird or The Green Woman Waltz. And now there was none of the old crowd left only harry and myself harry with a company now and myself very busy at headquarters and harry's company were very dull men promoted n c o s mostly good fellows all very good in the line but they were not the old crowd now instead of those great evenings we used to have with the white wine and the music and old george dancing evenings that have come down in the history of the battalion as our battles have done, evenings that kept the spirit strong in the blackest times. There were morose men with wooden faces sitting silently over some whiskey and battalion orders. And Hewitt was dead, the laughing, lovable Hewitt. That was the black heart of it. When a man becomes part of the great machine, he is generally supposed... I don't know why, to surrender with his body, his soul and his affections, and all his human tenderness. But it is not so. We never talked of Hewitt very much, only there was forever a great gap. And sometimes, when we tried to be cheerful in the evenings, as in the old times, and were not, we said to each other, Harry and I, I wish to God that he was here, yet for long periods I forgot Hewitt. Harry never forgot him. Then there was something about which I may be wrong, for Harry never mentioned it, and I am only guessing from my own opinion. In two years of war he had won no kind of medal or distinction, except a mention in dispatches, which is about as satisfying as a caraway seed to a starving man." In Gallipoli he had done things which in France, in modern times, would have earned an easy decoration. But they were scarce in those days, and in France he had done much dogged and difficult work, and a few very courageous, but in a military sense perfectly useless things, nothing dramatic, nothing to catch the eye of the brigade. I don't know whether he minded much, but I felt it myself very keenly, for I knew that he had started with ambitions. And here were fellows with not half his service, or courage, or capacity, just ordinary men with luck, ablaze with ribbon. Anyone who says he cares nothing about medals is a hypocrite, though most of us care very little. But if you believe you have done well, and not only is there nothing to show for it, but nothing to show that other people believe it, you can't help caring. And then, on top of it, when you have a genuine sense of bitter injustice, when you know that your own most modest estimate of yourself is exalted, compared with the estimate of the man who commands you, you begin to have black moods. Harry had black moods. All these torments accumulated and broke his spirit. He lost his keenness, his cheerfulness, and his health. Once a man starts on that path, his past history finds him out like an old wound. Some men take to drink and are disgraced. In Harry's case it was Gallipoli. No man who had a bad time in that place ever got over it in body or soul. AND WHEN FRANCE OR SOME OTHER CAMPAIGN BEGAN TO WORK UPON THEM, IT WAS SEEN THAT THERE WAS SOMETHING MISSING IN THEIR RESISTING POWER. THEY BROKE OUT WITH OLD DISEASES AND OLD FEARS, THE LEGACIES OF GALLIPOLI. HARRY GREW PALE AND NERVOUS AND HUNTED TO LOOK AT. AND HE HAD A TOUCH OF DYSENTERY. BUT THE WORST OF THE POISON WAS IN HIS MIND AND HEART. For a long time, as I have said, since he felt the beginning of those old doubts, and saw himself starting downhill, he had striven anxiously to keep his name high in men's opinion, for all liked him and believed in him. He had been ready for anything, and done his work with a conscientious pride. But now this bitterness was on him. HE SEEMED TO HAVE CEASED TO CARE WHAT HAPPENED OR WHAT MEN THOUGHT OF HIM. HE HAD UNREASONABLE FITS OF TEMPER. HE BECAME DISTRUSTFUL AND CYNICAL. I THOUGHT THEN SOMETIMES OF THE DAY WHEN HE HAD LOOKED AT TROY AND WANTED TO BE LIKE ACHILLES. IT WAS PAINFUL TO ME TO HEAR HIM TALKING AS Eustace USED TO TALK, SUSPICIOUS, INTOLERANT, INCREDULOUS. I thought how Harry had once hated that kind of talk, and it was most significant of the change that had come over the good companion I had known. Yet sometimes, when the sun shone, and once, when we rode back into Albert and dined quietly alone, that mask of bitterness fell away. There were flashes of the old, cheerful Harry, and I had hopes. I hoped Philpott would be killed." but he survived, for he was very careful. And though, as I have said, he stuck it for a long time, he was by no means the gallant fire-eater you would have imagined from his treatment of defaulters. Once round the line just before dawn was enough for him in that sort of country. Things are quiet, then, and you can see what's going on. He liked it best when things were quiet. So did all of us, and I don't blame him for that. But that winter, there was a thick crop of S.I.W.'s. S.I.W. is the short title for a man who has been evacuated with self-inflicted wounds, shot himself in the foot, or held a finger over the muzzle of his rifle, or dropped a great boulder on his foot, done himself any reckless injury to escape from the misery of it all. IT WAS ALWAYS A MARVEL TO ME THAT ANY MAN WHO COULD FIND COURAGE TO DO SUCH THINGS COULD NOT FIND COURAGE TO GO ON. I SUPPOSE THEY FELT IT WOULD BRING THEM THE CERTAINTY OF A LITTLE RESPITE, AND BEYOND THAT THEY DID NOT CARE, FOR IT WAS THE UNCERTAINTY OF THEIR LIFE THAT HAD BROKEN THEM. YOU COULD NOT HELP BEING SORRY FOR THESE MEN, EVEN THOUGH YOU DESPISED THEM. It made you sick to think that any man who had come voluntarily to fight for his country could be brought so low that humanity could be so degraded exactly where it was being so ennobled. But Philpott had no such qualms. He was ruthless, and necessarily so. But beyond that, he was brutal, he bullied. When they came before him, healed of their wounds, haggard miserable wisps of men he kept them standing there while he told them at length exactly how low they had sunk they knew that well enough poor devils and flung at them a rich vocabulary of abuse words of cowardice and dishonor which were strictly accurate but highly unnecessary for these men were going back to duty now they had done their punishment though the worst of it was still to come. All they needed was a few quiet words of encouragement from a strong man to a weaker, a little human sympathy, and that appeal to a man's honor which so seldom fails if it is rightly made. Well, this did not surprise me in Philpott. He had no surprises for me by now. What did surprise me was Harry's intolerant, even cruel comments, on the cases of the SIWs. He had always had a real sympathy with the men. He knew the strange workings of their minds, and all the wretchedness of their lives. He understood them. And yet here he was, as scornful, as Prussian on the subject of SIWs, as even Philpott. It was long before I understood this. I don't know that I ever did but I thought it was this, that in these wrecks of men he recognized something of his own sufferings, and recognizing the disease, he was the more appalled by the remedy they took. The kind of thing that had led them to it was the kind of thing he had been through, was going through. There the connection ceased. There was no such way out for him, but though it ceased, The connection was so close that it was degrading. And this scorn and anger was a kind of instinctive self-defense, put on to assure himself, to assure the world, that there was no connection, none at all. But I don't know. At the end of February I was wounded and went home. Without any conceit, without exaggerating our friendship, I may say that this was the final blow for Harry. I was the last of the old crowd. I was the one man who knew the truth of things as between him and Philpott. And I went. I was hit by a big shell at whiz Corner, and Harry saw me on the stretcher as we came past D Company on the Bapaume Road. He walked with me as far as the cookers, and was full of concern for my wound, which was pretty painful just then. But he bucked me up and talked gaily of the good things I was going to, and he said nothing of himself. But when he left me there was a look about him, what is the word? Wistful. It is the only one. Like a dog left behind. While I was still in hospital I had two letters from the battalion. The first was from Harry, a long wail about Philpott and the dullness of everybody now that the old crowd were extinct, though he seemed to have made good friends of some of the dull ones. At the end of that endless winter, when it seemed as if the spring would never come, they had pulled out of the line and trekked up north, so that there had been little fighting. They were now in shell-holes across the high ridge in front of Arras, preparing for an advance. The other letter was from Old Knight, the quartermaster, dated two months after I left. I will give you an extract. Probably by now you will have seen or heard from young Penrose. He was hit on the 16th, a nasty wound in the chest from a splinter, It was rather funny—not funny, but you know what I mean—how he got it. I was there myself, though I didn't see it. I had been up to HQ to see about the rations, and there were a lot of us—Johnson he is now adjutant in your place—and fellows, and so on, standing outside HQ, which is on a hill, what you people call a forward slope, I believe and watching our guns bombarding the village. It was a remarkable sight, etc., etc., a long digression. Then the Boche started shelling our hill. He dropped them in pairs, first of all at the other end of the hill, about 500 yards off, and then nearer and nearer, about 20 yards at a time. The line they were on was pretty near to us, so we thought the dugout would be a good place to go to. Penrose was just starting to go back to his company when this began, and as we went down, somebody told him he'd better wait a bit. But he said, no, he wanted to get back. I was the last down, and as I disappeared, pretty hurriedly, I told him not to be a fool. But all he said was, this is nothing, old bird. YOU WAIT TILL YOU LIVE UP HERE. I'M GOING ON." THE NEXT THING WE HEARD WAS THE HELL OF AN EXPLOSION ON TOP. WE RAN UP AFTERWARDS AND THERE HE WAS, ABOUT THIRTY YARDS OFF. THE FUNNY THING IS THAT I UNDERSTOOD HE RATHER HAD THE WIND-UP JUST NOW AND WAS ANYTHING BUT RECKLESS. IN FACT, SOMEONE SAID HE HAD THE DUGOUT DISEASE. "'Otherwise, you'd have said he wanted to be killed. "'I don't know why he wasn't, asking for it like that. "'Well, thank God, I'm a Q.M., etc., etc. "'I read it all very carefully and wondered. "'You'd have said he wanted to be killed. "'I wondered about that very much. "'And there was a postscript which interested me. By the way, I hear Burnett's got the M.C. For salvage, I believe. End of chapter 9 Recording by Roger Moline